I'd also like to welcome you here this morning. We're glad that you're with us. For some of you, you're just here for this Sunday, but we have um, put together an Easter series. It's a brief one. It only started last week and then with Good Friday, this past Friday, and now today that for, for those three messages trying to look together as a church and who Jesus was and why it's significant that he came, why his death is different than anyone else's death. So we, we can't say everything in, in one message. So we put it together and we just encourage you, if you want to go back and kind of get up to speed, they're available to you at any moment in time just via our website to listen in more. But there was also an intention in it in that we went to three very different passages of Scripture. Uh, This is going to be the third one, but three different authors, three different people who had encountered the resurrected Christ and then had something to say to another group of people about who Jesus was. But they were early eyewitness. They were followers of his who said, it's not just that the tomb is empty, but we've actually encountered and met the risen Lord. And so the question is, were they telling the truth or not? Uh, is, as we're gathered together, are we just kind of part of a hoax, or is it really true? And how would we even know if we could trust their testimony or their eyewitness accounts? But it's quite an amazing thing. Even if you have a, a difficulty believing in the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, here you are gathered in a room 2,000 years later with many people that you do not know, at least celebrating that and saying that they believe that. And we're not alone here. All over this world, in a variety of languages, in a variety of cultures, this truth is being celebrated. That increasingly, English is sort of the minority language in which this is being celebrated today. Spanish is probably the the largest language that this is being celebrated. But any corner of the world that you can go to, people are worshiping Christ, saying that he is in fact risen, and that is what we believe, and that is what we place our hope in. So at a minimum, that should cause you to pause and say, well, how did that happen, right? So if they lie, they, I mean, they must have really come up with a clever lie that could be believed so many years later by so many different people in so many different settings with backgrounds that they've experienced. Well, that, those kind of questions aren't just for us today. That was even true in the New Testament. As they wrote and as they shared their stories with people, they were challenged by them, and they had to explain to them how they could really, really believe this. And so that's one of the passages we're going to. It's in First Peter chapter 1. It's towards the end of your New Testament, but I invite you to take a Bible now and to open it. And we're going to look at what one of these earliest followers of Jesus said about the resurrection And here he's writing decades after the event. So he's writing to a bunch of people, kind of like you and me, that we weren't there. We weren't in Jerusalem. We didn't see the empty tomb. And we're hearing about it from someone who says they were there. That's actually exactly who Peter is writing to. This is on page 1014, if you're using a Bible provided for you. And uh, we'll read the chapter in its entirety. But you'll see right from the beginning, he's going to list off a whole bunch of cities, and not one of them is Jerusalem. So he's, he's writing to a bunch of people scattered all over the place who, just like you and me, weren't there, but were curious as to what happened. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, 
for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, in glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever and this word is the good news that was preached to you and that's where we'll conclude so it is a curious fact that people all over the world worship and acknowledge Jesus Christ as risen from the grave but you can say Taking something that isn't true and just multiplying it by a bunch of people doesn't make it any more true, right? Like whenever someone's volunteering or, you know, doing work at your house or just a friend and you can kind of joke to them and say, hey, if you come back, you know, I'll give you a raise, right? Because you can multiply zero by anything and it's still zero. So you can promise them a 200% increase, a 1,000% increase. Just because it gets larger when you're actually starting from zero, the number never grows, So it's not just enough to say that many, many people 
believe in it. We have to consider honestly whether or not it is believable, whether it is true. In one of the places that the New Testament starts for us, and this is towards the end of the New Testament, so had we been reading it from the beginning to end, we would have been surprised in verse 1 when we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because he's sort of an unlikely witness. Because the way he's introduced to us from the beginning of the New Testament is that if Peter believes that Jesus really did raise from the dead, then the things that Peter did and recorded for us in the gospel are actually really pretty bad. For Peter to say and believe that Jesus is who he said he is, he has to acknowledge and admit that what he did was really bad and he really messed up. Because Peter is one of the followers of Jesus who spent three years with him and who when people came to arrest Jesus, he was the one to pull out a sword and to go after them. And Jesus said, no, you shouldn't do that. And then when Jesus was in his most emotional and physically harmful period and point hours of his life, it was Peter who was afraid to acknowledge that he even knew him. He, he ran from it. He was scared. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we'd never know about it. It actually wouldn't be all that bad. We would totally understand how in the emotion of what transpired that he would be afraid and he would just run because he didn't want the same thing to happen to him. But for Peter to say, then I've seen him and he rose from the grave, you know, I really... I really was one of the ones that, that abandoned him when he, when he needed someone to stand with him. I wasn't one of those. I, I was someone who even tried to stop it from happening. When they came and Christ was willing to submit, I was ready to fight. And so there is no way for Peter to tell us the good news about Jesus without having to then admit the bad news about himself. It's even more true in the case of the Apostle Paul. He was somebody who was hard against the church. He thought everyone who believed in the resurrection was absurd and ridiculous. And he committed his life to persecuting them, to saying, you're not allowed to gather together and sing songs about Jesus and proclaim him as Lord. And he was violent in it. People lost their lives because of Saul. And then he became someone who said, I've met the risen Lord. I, I actually now believe what those people believe who I was persecuting. So do you see what's at, what it cost him to now change his mind? If he changes his mind about Jesus, then he has to change his mind about what he was doing. If Jesus is risen and he is Lord, then Paul really was committing murder. He really should be locked up somewhere. And so there's no way for Paul to say, I really believe in Jesus and the news is really good without admitting the bad news about himself. And that's the case with Peter, that as we read the story and then we come and say, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, good night. (laughs) Would not have guessed that he would have the courage to proclaim the message and to stick with it for long enough to proclaim it over decades as a follower of Jesus 
when before he couldn't last just a few moments, when he had just been with Jesus and then denied him. He's an unlikely witness in that sense. Yes, he was there, but for him, over time, to continue to affirm, I really saw him, I really believe him, this is really, really true. And then that entire time, having to acknowledge all of his junk, all of his mistakes, it it gives us at least a little bit of a caution to say, you know, when most people are lying about themselves, they're not lying to make themselves look worse, right? Plenty of people will perpetuate a lie. They'll continue on over a long period of time. And that's one of the dangers of sin. Sin always leads to more sin. And so when we lie about something, then in order to keep it going, we usually have to keep on lying. But for most of us, the temptation to do that is because we don't want people to find out about our junk. We don't want them to know what's in the closet. We don't want them to hear about the mistakes we've made. But when what we're saying completely admits and puts on the table all of our worst moments in life, that would, should give most of us reason to say, I'll keep listening. You're, you're totally honest about where you messed up and what you've done wrong and w- what you should have done differently. I'll, I'll keep on listening. And, and so if we do, we find out that this unlikely witness then talks about a hope that we have that is living. He says, not only is there that testimony from him about the change that's experienced in his life, but he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so he's saying to now all of these people over a period of time, as they've considered Christ for themselves and thought through the implications of it, they can say, haven't you experienced a change? That you've been born again to a living hope. That you can now, in your own life, pray to this risen Lord. You can be shaped by his teaching, his influence, because that's the very distinctive teaching of our faith, that he's not just a person of history that we look back on and remember what happened, but that he is alive. And the hope we have is just as alive as he is, and so the opportunity for you or me to really consider him, to really address him, and to have him speak into our lives is a present reality. And so by putting into practice the teachings of Jesus and putting into practice the the way of life that Jesus modeled. There is a way for people to say, if I commit myself more and more to him and to his ways and I pray to him, there is a very experiential sense in which what we've heard someone else describe, we can now say, I know what you're talking about. I've experienced that freedom of being able to come completely clean with who I was to acknowledge all of the hurts and all of the mistakes, and yet in that, I'm not just falling apart in shame and despair, but I I have hope. There there was something liberating about that. There was something freeing in being able to acknowledge to the God who made me that there's, yes, there's something broken within me and that I want to follow him and I want to pursue after him. Most of us can be manipulated emotionally for a period of time. You know, we can do that in a service. There, there is just a way to kind of turn up the volume so loud that we just kind of mess things up inside, inside your own heart and your body's trying to figure out what's going on and then make some kind of an appeal. But then, I mean, you have to leave and you have to get into a car and you have to go back into your routine and then at some point you say, 
Okay, well, what, it, what was that about and what did that mean? And so for an idea to be sustained for a long period of time, to keep on believing it, then you, you'll think you'll come to it at totally different phases in your life. And that's true of these people, that this is a living hope that they have been wrestling with for a very long period of time that they've thought about and prayed about and committed themselves to and have had plenty of opportunity to consider, is this really worth it? Should I keep on going this way? Should I pass on what's been passed on to me? And for the majority of them, the answer was yes, because they'd experienced this living hope. Though they were in all these other cities and weren't in Jerusalem when it happened, this living reality of Christ present among them, available to them, was something that they then said, and adopted the faith as their own, that they could pass on to other people. It was an unfolding mystery. That's what Peter then goes on to describe. He says, this was something that isn't just lived now, but it was actually predicted long before Jesus ever came. Prophets were writing things down, wondering, when would this be fulfilled? That in their prayers, in their encounters with God, they had a sense of it, but they didn't know when exactly. They didn't know who. They didn't know how. It even says it was something in verse 12 that the angels longed to look into. That there was a curiosity on their part. <laughs> when is this really going to happen? And when it happens, what's really going to happen? Did they know that when this baby was born, he would one day end up on a cross? Did they understand that fully? Or as it was transpiring, they themselves, just like all of the disciples were saying, that isn't what we thought was going to happen. <laughs> and, that, and that is true of all of Jesus' earliest followers. Were they hoping and expecting a Messiah? Yes, there were tons of people hoping for a Messiah. But a Messiah that would end up on a cross? A Messiah that would die? A Messiah that would be buried? That wasn't in their minds. In their minds, it was we'll finally get a ruler who'll be able to organize us enough that he can lead an army and we can start a revolution and finally get the power back that we wanted. And here they are, decades later, continuing to proclaim this message that, no, that that actually isn't what he did. He wasn't some just clever military guy that led people captive. He didn't force or, or coerce anyone into anything. He came humbly. He spoke plainly. And so people who choose to follow him choose to follow him by faith. They do it at a cost, and Peter acknowledges that. He says, there's sort of a testing going on of the genuineness of your faith, and there's kind of this reason for this prolonged time so that it isn't just an immediate reaction to something, but that it's a thoughtful, purposeful, committed way of life to follow after him and to take very, very seriously what he said. Because to take seriously what he said is then to do the kinds of things he did. And if he was willing to model loving people by suffering for them, well, you don't just talk someone into that. If you or I are going to say we want to live that way, we have to really, really think about it. Would I make sacrifices for other people? Would I try to reach out to someone who doesn't like me at all and is not interested in me at all and and do the work necessary for that to happen? Am I willing to experience the type of shame or accusations against reputation that Jesus experienced? Well, if you are, that won't be because in 20 minutes someone persuaded you of something. You're going to have to really think about it. 
Really consider it. Prayerfully consider it. Consider the alternatives to it. And only in the encountering of this Christ, as this mystery is revealed, then would you move forward in it. The term mystery in the New Testament is not usually described to say like we would say, well, it's a mystery, and so what that means is you'll never figure it out. When it usually talks about mystery, it talks about something that was partially known but now is fully known. That you knew bits and pieces along the way, but only now do you see what it really is meant to be. And I experienced this when I worked in the construction trade for a brief period of time and with no talent, just pure labor. But in the middle of a construction project, there's so many things you do along the way that don't make sense. Because you put up one wall... And then you have to use a whole bunch of pieces to hold that wall in place before you put the next wall in place. And when it's all done, then you take all those temporary things away because they're all counter to what ultimately the main thing is. But along the way, you walk into the front door and there's like beams you have to avoid. There's things that are there. The the whole thing isn't together yet. And so there's a lot that's temporary, but it's not contrary to what you're ultimately trying to do. But only, you know, there are some who are just able to kind of visualize those things well. For me, I just always like, what is this going to look like when we're done? This doesn't make any sense. Who, why would we go this way when we're trying to do this? But only when it's all put together that you then say, that's why they were doing that. That's why we dug this way and extended that way. So it was mysterious in that it was partially known, but then eventually becomes fully known. And the New Testament says the mysteries of the Old Testament aren't still mysteries in that sense that we can, we'll never figure them out and we don't know them. He's saying, no, 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 we know them. It's about Jesus. They were telling us about Jesus, that he has come. And what they knew in part, what they had temporary knowledge of, we see it in its fullness. He is who he said he is. He did what he said he'll do. We can trust in him. We can rely on him. And because he rose from the dead, we can also believe that the things he still said he's going to do, he's going to do. And so the resurrection of Jesus also makes it possible for us to have faith in the future revelation of Jesus. That phrase is repeated several times in this chapter, that his rising from the dead was a sort of a down payment in Jesus' own words of his return again one day, that he would come back, that there will be a full and final revelation that everyone will believe and everyone will know that he is who he said he is. And then what this requires, what then Peter says, is if you want to know what you and I are supposed to do in between, he says in verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. There again, it's not the kind of thing that somebody says to us when they're just trying to sell us something. When they're trying to get us to believe something that isn't really true. Because Peter is saying, all of us have to now pursue a long obedience. That for the entirety of our lives, we seek to pursue a life of holiness, which means that we're going to say no to a lot of the passions that are in our heart and mind. When most people are trying to sell us something, they're, they're trying to pull out our passions and then say, all those passions are good and right, and here's how we can satisfy them. You would be happy if you did this. You would be satisfied if you only bought this. 
And so we're kind of suspect. We, we, have, we live in a sales culture. Everything is for sale. You can't watch, uh, you know, it was reported recently that the entire March Madness makes more money than the NFL and most of the playoffs combined because it's so drawn out. And then you watch it, it is. Everything's for sale, as many have pointed out. They never just say it's the halftime show, right? It's the, it's the Ford halftime show brought to you by such and such. And it's like, yeah, we live in a society where it seems like everything is for sale. And most of those people are then trying to appeal to our passions to then say that they can satisfy them. But Peter is saying, what Christ has done for you actually will enable you to live in such a way, if you believe it and commit to it, to say no to your passions, to pursue a life of holiness, a life of self-denial. Not because he's trying to uh, sort of cast the Christian life as one of sadness. No, he says we have joy inexpressible but that we would discover that there is something about sin that even when we get what we want, we aren't happy. There's something about lust that even when it gets something, the way it works is it it immediately wants something else. It's not satisfied. It immediately wants more. And it cannot be satisfied. And as soon as we realize that it can never be satisfied and we commit ourselves to the one who's given everything for us, we're actually equipped and enabled to live lives of self-sacrifice for the benefit of other people, to extend ourselves for them because we're no longer trying to live life for ourselves. That kind of a long obedience cannot be sustained by a lie. It just can't. Eventually you'll stop and say, why am I doing this, right? As I've heard selfishness once defined by Ambrose Bierce in the Devil's Dictionary, he said, selfishness is the unwillingness to deal with the selfishness of other people. Right? It's frustrating when you're working with people. And then you, you feel like, I've, I, I've done so much for you, and I didn't get a thank you. I didn't get a... If you're going to sustain over a long period of time sacrificially loving people, then you're only going to be able to do that if you don't expect anything in return. If you go into it saying, they might never thank me, they might never realize what I was even trying to do for them, they probably think I'm weird for trying to do this for them, but I really am committed to this for the long haul. I'm committed to say as much as possible no to myself and yes to others because I believe that he really rose from the dead. And he really has shown a way of life in forgiving me for all of my sins and taking care of all of my badness. He's really given me the opportunity to live freely for other people. Why? Because he's given us an unending joy. Each time we've looked at, uh, on last Sunday, the word made flesh, and then Friday the word made sin, and today the word made perfect, because this statement here at the end of the chapter is just filled with so much promise. It talks about an unending joy that we have because he says that we've received all of this. We've been born again, verse 23, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is grass and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So he's telling us, if we put our faith in this risen, resurrected Savior, then we put our confidence in our joy in someone and in something that is never-ending. That's the good news that we have. If you and I put our joy in our relationships, in the person sitting next to us, that joy lasts as long as they do. 
If we put our joy in our sense of prestige in place in society, that joy lasts as long as that power and prestige. If we put our joy and confidence in the resources and the money that we have, it lasts as long as that lasts. And so when Christ comes to us and says, place your joy in me, place your confidence in me, he's saying, place your ultimate joy in that which will never end. And your joy will never end. It will keep on going. Because I am alive forevermore. I am imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And so your salvation is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It can be there forever for you if that is what you ultimately place your confidence and your joy in. That is the good news that is preached to us. It is the most loving thing that Christ could ever say to point out to us that everything else we're looking at is broken, is fading, is passing. We know that with time. But he offers to us something that truly is unending, never fading, only getting better and sweeter with time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you and we thank you for the truth of who you are and what you've done and why we gather not just on this Sunday but on every Sunday to just very tangibly demonstrate that everything changes because you rose from the grave. About how we think about our own priorities and passions in life and its purpose and how we're supposed to treat other people that if we place our faith and hope in you it can really change everything. But we know that you, you aren't trying to sell us anything. You aren't trying to manipulate any fake emotional response from anyone here. You want us to seriously think about it. And so we pray that you would help us to do that. Help us to limit some of the distractions that we might so quickly go to that would prevent us from seriously considering who you are and from coming back to consider it again and again. But we do pray that for all of us also who have made that choice to place our joy and our confidence in you, that you would help us to take seriously, like Peter said, a life of self-sacrifice. That we really are free to love other people for a long time, not ever knowing what might come of it. This can only happen by a miracle of rebirth through your spirit in us. And so we pray for that in your son's name. Amen.